Welcome to Thrive, a series that explores how founders, leaders, and changemakers innovate, grow, and navigate in an age of constant disruption. Tonight, we're thrilled to kick off our third Thrive event. Uh, we have Matt Wilsey from Gray Science, um, who will be interviewed by Randall Usury, who is the CEO of Free Range and a Babson alum, and also teaches here at Babson as well. So thanks for being here, and uh, we look forward to a good discussion. I had the chance to meet Matt uh, about 18 months ago, I think. Uh, we were having a conversation um, down in Palo Alto around what he was up to, um, and it was probably one of the most kind of inspiring conversations I've had in a really long time. Um, and I thought this would be a good forum for him to share his story and, um, and what he's up to. So yeah, maybe you can- uh, Do a high level. Yeah, maybe you can talk a little bit about why we were sitting there. And yeah, so my, my background, um, I'm a tech entrepreneur. <laughs> That's what I identify with the most. I've been involved in, in three tech startups. And um, I shifted gears pretty dramatically when my daughter Grace was born. She's seven and a half years old now. And we knew something was wrong in utero. And um, it was actually kind of a, a, a sort of a, a, an awakening when the doctors uh, at the time, we were living in New York, and they, they started to sort of outline the options for terminating the pregnancy. And uh, we just explained that that was not an option for us, that we were going forward no matter what. And whatever cards we were dealt with, we were going to deal with it head on. And um, so Grace was born, it was an emergency C-section at Stanford University. And we knew something was wrong right away. And um, I think it's sort of mom or dad intuition, but I, I can actually literally remember the moment where my life changed. Um, which is kind of, I, I don't think many people are, are fortunate or unfortunate enough to know when that moment actually is, but I actually can remember it vividly. And I just thought, you know, there's something wrong with Grace. And uh, so that really set us on the path that we are where we are today and, and sort of where we're going. Yeah, and so Grace was in NICU for just a number of days, and then the doctors kind of handed you a, a decision in many respects. To yeah, exactly. So yeah. it was it was about two and a half weeks we were in the NICU, which is a, is a harrowing experience by itself. Um, and for those fortunate to, to come out of the NICU, it's life-changing by itself. Um, uh, but for us, the doctors essentially said, there's nothing more we can do for you here. Uh, you should go home and, and monitor Grace as an outpatient. So we kind of felt like we had gotten to the edge of science and medicine within the first three weeks of life. And I was thinking to myself, yeah, there's nothing more you guys can do here? Like, this is it? This is, this is the extent of our knowledge. And uh, so we just sort of felt like, okay, then we'll, we'll pick up the slack where, where they aren't able to continue. Yeah, and so when you arrive home, you kind of have a choice, and you were given really three choices. What were they? Yeah, our, our, I mean, the, they didn't say it this clearly, but the three choices we really had, um, you know, basically go home and enjoy your, your daughter for a, for as many years as you might get. Um, you could think about starting uh, your own foundation um, and kind of building the, the pieces of, uh, of almost like a, of a medical research institute, or you could potentially join something that's larger. Um, but since we didn't know what Grace had, who are we going to join up with? I mean, do we join up with like the Michael J. Fox Foundation? Do we join up with, you know, Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. I mean, there's the, basically the sky's the limit. And you know, if you're off by an inch at launch, uh, you're going to be off by miles in orbit. So it was like, I think we need to take control of our own destiny and start our own foundation. So you set off on uncovering what she has, and you want to yeah, talk about that yeah, yeah. So, journey a little bit. Yeah. And, and this is kind of, you know, many people don't know, but there's um, 7,000 rare diseases. Um, that exists today, that number is going to increase quite dramatically with the advent of whole genome sequencing. Um, but so a rare disease is classified, at least in the United States, as something that affects less than 200,000 individuals. So if you think about it, 200,000 individuals is, is a lot of people. Um, it's pretty amazing that that's how it's classified as a rare disease. In, in, in Grace's case, we now know that there's less than 50 people in the world confirmed with what she has, just to kind of put it in perspective, less than 50 in the entire world. 
So this is ultra, ultra rare. But we, um, it, I think it kind of goes back to being uh, really an entrepreneur, but especially a tech entrepreneur, where in my mind, I wanted the data. I want all the data that I can get my hands on. And I would think most entrepreneurs would think the same thing, even if they're not in technology. I'm not sure how I'm going to analyze it. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with it, but just let's get it. Let's get it in our hands and start working with it. And so that's what we did. We did uh, whole genome sequencing at two centers, two of the top centers in the United States, um, at Stanford and, and Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. They both came up with the same root cause. Um, it happened to be the wrong root cause. And this is, this is what happens when you're, you know, you're pushing the envelope early in any field or discipline that you, know, you guys are going to go into. But um, we said, let's, let's keep going. Let's keep pushing. And just like the Google algorithm, it gets better the more you search, either personally or the, also the community. And um, so we went back to the teams and said, would you please resequence uh, Grace? And they did. And keep in mind, at this time, no one was doing whole genome sequencing. This was really cutting edge stuff. How many years ago? Uh, it was about five years ago. We yeah. started six years ago. Uh, some people were doing whole exome, which is just a small portion of our, our genetic code. Um, but anyway, so we went back, and they were able to actually pinpoint what the root cause was with repetition. So it's, uh, the analogy I use with many people that aren't scientists is imagine if there's a, you know, a, a blue wall or, you know, and you want to paint it white. Well, if you just do one coat, you're still seeing the blue through the paint. So you have to keep going over it repeatedly, and that's what we did until we were able to find the root cause. So you uncover the root cause, and it happens to be NGLI1. Yeah. What is, what is that? Yeah. What does that so, mean in yeah. layman's terms? No, I mean, yeah. NGLI1, it, it happens to be a gene that all of you carry, and all of you have at least one healthy copy of this gene. We, we almost, of all the genes in our body, there's 20,000. We typically inherit um, one from our mother and one from our father. There's a few exceptions to that, of course, but um, in Grace's case, she inherited two bad copies, one bad one from me and, and one bad one from my wife, Kristen. It was just a, a random thing of bad luck that really couldn't have been prevented because the disease had not been identified at that point. Yeah, and so when we met, you were about three years into this <laughs> process of uncovering even NGLI1, right? Yes. And then understanding how to actually think about gathering as much data as possible. And, and, and then you were also dealing with the side of the government as well as just the industry itself of how are you going to solve for a rare disease, right? Right. You just didn't want to improve the quality of care. You wanted to right. think about curing, right? Yeah, and, and that, that I guess that was kind of in our original three options was improve quality of life somehow. Um, but, you know, I, I wasn't going to just stand at improving quality of life. I really wanted a, a cure. And if you say that to people in science or medicine, they dismiss you almost immediately. And they say there's not many, there's not many cures out there. I mean, there's, there's less than, you know, 10 probably real cures, technical cures. There's a lot of treatments. Um, for high blood pressure or diabetes or things like that, but they're not cures. And I, so I said, well, uh, I, I want to I cure this disease. And in the process, we're probably going to find other things that we could potentially treat or also cure. And that was really, our, has been our mantra since the get-go. And part of that is um, finding the best talent that also believes in that vision. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, it, from my days as an entrepreneur, um, uh, John Doerr was involved in, our, in my first tech startup, and he said, you know, it's really important, um, and actually it probably would be more closely attached to someone like Bill Campbell or Randy Komisar, but they said, you know, it's really important to hire missionaries, not mercenaries. And it's, it's easy in science and medicine to hire mercenaries, people that are just going after grant money. Um, they're not really interested in, in the patients. Would they be pursuing this if it was not, if they weren't being paid to do it? And so that's really where the, the hard part comes in, is, is finding people that believe in the mission and they're going to be you know, working 24 hours a day to make it successful. Yeah, maybe we can go into that a little bit. Uh, you know, it's, it's a terminal illness, right? Yeah. She has 12 years, potentially, that we don't know. Yeah, I mean, the, old, the oldest patient that we've, we've found is 23 years old. 
um, but she's slightly deteriorating. Um, we lost one of our, our patients last uh, May who was a four-year-old. So we're not really sure where, where the, the end comes, but um, we're working like it's you know, tomorrow, basically. Right. And so when we were having our initial conversation, um, a lot of what we were talking about was this wasn't a $2 million operating budget problem, right? That the, was the size of the foundation at the time. This was a, yeah. a larger need for access to capital to go and explore what the opportunity could be to solve for this. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And the, the thought process behind that. And it's interesting because we're probably, we've probably been more successful than 99.9% .9 of foundations out there in terms of fundraising. And as generous as our family and friends and just the general public have been, it's not enough to, to cure something like this. The great thing is, is that the way science and medicine is developing is that things are becoming cheaper. And so my feeling is, instead of costing 100 million to uh, 200 million to, let's say, to develop a treatment, could we do it for 20 to 40 million dollars? Because if we could, um, there's a potential both for investors but also for the government to step up on, on things um, like that. Um, so it's a simple cost-benefit analysis. Um, in our case, we felt that we could raise a lot more money as a for-profit entity. Mm -hmm. We just had to be you know, very concrete and that it, it is a risky proposition and it's going to take some time. But the, the return on investment is absolutely possible. And there's other companies that are also showing this now, which is exciting for us. Yeah, and if you solve for one rare disease, you have the potential to solve for other rare diseases. I think there's a statistic one in 10 people on the street that you pass has a rare disease. That's right, yeah. You just wouldn't know it. Yeah. Um, so there, you know, if you look at it from an aggregated perspective, there's a lot bigger opportunity. Um, so you, know, you have the access to capital issue or you know, the need for capital to go and do something. But then you're also facing an industry that is kind of waterfall in many respects. So yeah. like, let's, let's take your background from a tech perspective and thinking about how you were agile and moving really fast yeah. to where you're playing now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, th I think we still are very agile and fast. It's just not as fast as I'm used to. Right. So the scientists are always <laughs> like, I don't know if you realize this, but you guys are going like at warp speed. But of course, as an entrepreneur, you can always go warp plus one or what, you know, what, what is the you know, additive? We can always improve. If you think you can't improve, you're, you're pulling someone's chain. Yeah. Right? It's, it's just, you, there's always room to become more efficient. And so that's, that's what we've been trying to do. Um, I would say that the industry we're playing in does not like to change. Um, partly that's, they're, they're just risk adverse. Um, uh, in general, and the liability of that. And partly it's because they just don't want to um, disrupt their, their revenue centers. Um, they have, of course, Wall Street to, to respond to. Um, but as we say, you know, look, our, our shareholders are our patients. And, and so we're not really setting the timetable for the disease. The disease is setting the timetable for us. And um, so we're trying to work back from that. Um, and, and so, I would say that you know initially, and I think to this day, people, most of the CEOs that we talk to in, in, in pharmaceutical companies will say there's just not enough patients for us to be interested. And even if we could convince one of them to take us as a project, they won't be there probably in five to 10 years. So then what's the first program that gets cut? It's the, it's, it's the one with the smallest number of patients. Right. Um, and so that's where, again, it comes back to taking sort of the bull by the horns and and controlling your own future. Yeah, and then coming back to that of kind of what Commissar said around missionaries, hiring missionaries, yeah. and thinking about being a little bit more patient-centered, I think you were kind of facing that as well against the mercenary aspect of the industry at times, not holistically, but, yeah. um, but you know, you're wrestling with a daughter that is potentially going to pass because right. of this disease, and, and how do you get people to understand that emotionally? Like, and, and so, Talk about the building of your team and how you kind of brought them together. Yeah, so we, the, the, initially it was who's the best at X or what is our biggest gap in our, in our platform right now? What, what could get us the fastest answers um, and the cleanest answers? And we started to triangulate on a few different areas and then from there a few different candidates. 
Um, and we, we don't put out RFPs and say, would the world please apply to this program? We're offering money, right? Um, we felt like we would just be totally overwhelmed responding to those, reading, to the, reading them and then responding. So uh, we cherry pick the best of the best. Um, so imagine if you're, start, yeah, if you're starting a new search engine, you'd go steal from Facebook or right. Google or Twitter. You'd go grab those people, recruit them. And so that's what we did. There were no subject matter experts on this disease. We wanted to build the team. We, it was almost like a Manhattan project. We wanted the best of the best. And, um, and then they started to recruit people for us. So this also, you guys have probably seen this in your careers, is A plus talent wants to be with A plus talent. And they start policing themselves in a way. They start, you know, you don't want to be on the next monthly call and not show that your work is been meaningful or successful. So you're going to work day and night to make sure that you're going to have something meaningful. But even though you had an outcome driven a mission, you yeah. were also lending them autonomy and collaboration that they hadn't had in the past, right? Maybe speak about that. Yeah, a that's, bit. that's a great point. So we, in a, in a true startup sense, um, we don't want to micromanage the talent. Like if, if, if we've done our job bringing on the best people, your work's done. Now it's about creating the environment where they can be successful. And so we wanted a really flat organization with no hierarchy. And our only request was that they shared openly amongst each other. And this is very uncommon, right? It's, it just yeah. does not happen. It yeah. just doesn't. And, and maybe talk about the industry as a whole in that yeah, respect. And, yeah, and especially yeah. within academia, most scientists, most researchers really want to hoard the information for themselves. Um, and it's, it's a little bit of um, kind of Lord of the Flies in essence. You know, it's sort of like this is, they have to publish papers in order to get tenure. And so in order to publish, they need data that only they really have access to or that they can do meaningful things with. And it's not like, I'm sure people in industry or in academia that watch this will call, they'll say baloney, but it, yeah. it's very true. It, they, there were many silos where people aren't collaborating aren't communicating. And so we said, you're going to have to do something different here because we're, we're at limited time. And we don't have uh, not only limited time, but limited patience. Um, so we, there's no margin for error here. We can't do like a five-year double-blind placebo study on these kids, like where someone gets you know, fruit juice and someone else actually gets the drug. Right. Um, and, and people started to buy into that. And there's been some people that have not bought into that model of openness and collaboration. And part of that's because of IP licensing rights. Some of it, yeah, they securing, want securing it. Futures, yeah. And, and some of it's just that they, you know, they need to publish. And in order to publish, they need to protect their data. And um, those people aren't long for our team, just mm -hmm. to put it nicely. They just don't fit with sort of the mantra of, of the team. And in a way, like, you know, we, I feel like we kind of created the spark, but now it's, it's the team's um, uh, philosophy and vision, and, and it's evolving constantly. So it's whatever works best for them, mm -hmm. um, but always keeping, again, the patient as our number one decision point, which sometimes makes us unpopular. And we're starting to see a shift in that philosophy at the government level, right? At NIH yeah. and the FDA. Yes. Being a little bit more patient-centered focused first. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, and, and talk about that a little bit, because that's, that's not always common as well. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, some of this is, has been started in past, you know, uh, administrations um, uh, for, you know, all the worry and shortcoming shortcomings with President Trump, one of the things that was actually encouraging at his uh, joint address to Congress is that he did talk about rare diseases and, and uh, one uh, patient in particular uh, that suffers from Pompeii disease, which was pretty remarkable uh, to have a, a president actually address it at con uh, to Congress. But there is really bipartisan support for it. And I, say, I always say this to people, is that the FDA is not the problem. The problem is that we're not putting good enough um, compounds into the top of the funnel. If we, if we increase the number of compounds going into the funnel or therapies into the funnel that are, that are much more efficient, they're going to get approved. 
Um, so my feeling is that the, you know, the FDA is doing their job. Um, there's probably ways that they could become more efficient, but we're not even, we're, we're not there yet. We'd be lucky to be there. Right. And we hope to be there soon, but um, we still probably have some years left. So you want to go into your business model or your, your platform model a little yeah. bit and just kind of explain that? Yeah. What, what you are doing that may be a little bit different or it's replicating some best practice that's out there already that you've seen? Yeah, yeah. for sure. So the idea is um, there's a lot of these rare diseases that are below the surface. Uh, I almost think of it as the, you know, the iceberg analogy, right? 75% or whatever is below the waterline. And the same thing is true with rare diseases. Industry is focusing on the very, very top of the iceberg. So of the, all that you can see, it's only like the top 2% that they're actually investigating and trying to develop drugs for. And our philosophy is that if you actually grouped all these rare diseases below the surface together and understand what their connections are, maybe 10 of those diseases could benefit from the exact same therapy. So maybe it's not 7,000 unique rare diseases. Maybe we're actually only talking about needing to develop drugs for 1,000 or 500. And imagine how much more that becomes efficient, but also what the revenue potential is for, for businesses that think that way. But, so that's only one part of our model. Um, uh, and the second part is really bridging those to more common indications. Um, but uh, th that's sort of at a, at a macro level. On a, on a micro level, we really think of our model as, as being centered around the team. And, and some of that. Um, and if you have a chance to go to gracescience.com, yeah. you should check out the team. Yeah, it's a number of Nobel laureates or future Nobel laureates. Yeah. Um, and just a, a great you know, advisory network in general. Yeah. yeah. And the idea is that focus on the, on the set of advisors. These are always constant. Our team, our advisors, and then our network, um, which really goes to, it, it all goes back to being an entrepreneur and the roots of being an entrepreneur. And that I think a lot of what we've applied all comes from my time and my three tech startups. I say startups, I mean, they're, they're real companies now with you know, revenue and the, the last one was acquired by Twitter. Um, so it's a product that will live on for a long time. Um, but the idea is uh, to leverage these cores, the team, the network, and, and really traditional business development principles. Um, and then think about diseases that are rotating around that core and how they link together. I almost think of it as like a, a cryptics lock. You know, there's, there's some combination that we're just not sure of yet um, that's going to take time to tease out, but the, the combination's there. Yep, and high-level communication will actually be able to kind of unlock that I think so. opportunity, right? Yeah. So on this, let's move to the personal a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, we kind of started there. Let's kind of shift back. Uh, what's it been like for you, like oh, kind of wow. going through this process? Yeah. And, and you have an MBA, right? You have a tech background. Yeah. You know, also, you sat in politics a little bit. Yeah. Um, and now you're coming into an entirely new industry for you. How are you perceived? How do you perceive yourself? How yeah. do you deal with it on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, I mean, it's so funny. Because <laughs> Those are a lot of questions. Yeah, a lot of questions. Uh, how has it been? It has been incredibly hard. Um, I would definitely not wish this on anybody. Um, and I think it's probably just, it's human nature that there's the fight or flee instinct. And I know plenty of people in our position that have stayed to fight. And I know an equal number that have, have fleed the battle. And I respect both of them. And there's, uh, there's not a day that <laughs> really doesn't go by that I'm not like, maybe it's time to throw in the towel, you know? It's just, it is, uh, it is that um, level of stress and, um, and hardship, but it's one of those things where you, you just can't, or at least I can't. As I, as I see Grace, you know, when I put her to bed, I'm like, I, I literally can't give up, um, and uh, for better or worse. Mm -hmm. um, but the, there's been a lot of good things that have come from it. I, I say all the time that we've met the, literally the best scientists in the world, which is really cool. Like, I mean, I sometimes have to pitch myself and be like, I'm grabbing beers with this guy that won a Nobel Prize. <laughs> like, um, it's amazing. Um, and they would, they would do anything for Grace. Um, and I think that goes probably, again, back to the, the core of sort of the principles of being an entrepreneur. 
But um, and I think it's good for everyone to know when when I first met Matt. Um, my child was actually in NICU, had been in NICU for some time, and we weren't sure exactly what he was suffering from. Um, and I think we were six weeks in at the time when I met you, and, and Matt just stopped the conversation, right? It became, it wasn't about him at all, and he was just like, how can I help you? This is what you need to think about. This is, you know, who you should talk to. Push back, you know, you, you kind of gave me the checklist, right? Everything yeah. you had gone through. Yeah. Um, and then was consistently checking in with me, and this is someone on the other side that was had been going through this for some time and and i mean it just says a lot about your personality also Kristen's, right yeah like you you just care right you care fundamentally not just for grace but for the entire kind of rare disease population right yeah and that and that kind of also you know we're we don't shy away from a conflict i think um and partly that also you know kind of creates friction within the ecosystem where you know, if people say, well, this is how it's done, or this is the way we do things. And for us, if, if the way we do things or the way, you know, traditionally it occurs, if it's slowing up a therapy for our, our community or for rare diseases broadly, we're, go we're, going, we're going to address it. And that could be uncomfortable. But that's also what it means, I think, to be a leader is like, look, some of these, you're, you're, it's not a popularity contest. It, difficult decisions have to be made and um, uncomfortable conversations have to happen. Um, and so we, we hit those things head on. And yeah, Chris and I are a great team together. It, uh, it, it, you know, most, I forget what the percentage is, you know, it's like 49% of marriages end in divorce. Uh, in the rare disease world, it's like 89%. Um, it's that much more stress on a relationship in, in a marriage, but uh, yeah, this, uh, this September we'll be married 10 years and going stronger than ever, so yeah. Yeah. I've always loved um, Matt. Like I've I've had conversations with you late at night um, around eight thirty nine. I don't know ten, and and you're like I'm tired. <laughs> and then the next morning he's calling you like I'm great. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the benefits of the uh, Nespresso machine. Oh right, right, right. <laughs> um, so you know. You started this foundation about five years ago. Um, you've gotten it off the ground. Um, you were able to build and assemble a pretty strong team. Um, and now, I mean, literally right now, we're moving towards a, a for-profit model. Right. Um, um, how do you think it shifts? How you think about your day-to-day? -day and, 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 and what do you think the future looks like uh, from a business perspective in the next two to three years? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Bro broadly on the business side or just our business in particular? Uh, your business in yeah. particular, yeah. yeah. So um, we, 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 the, the next iteration is starting a, a for-profit entity. Um, it's a, really a, it's a rare disease platform, and the first target is going to be NGLI-1 because we know the most about it. But the idea is taking NGLI-1 and connecting it with bigger diseases that affect all of us in this room and, or online in some shape or form either our family members or our best friend or cousin. Um, and um, so in the next two to three years, I would, I, well, I set the goal of we want a therapy within five years. So uh, Grace is seven. So by the time she's 12, I expect a therapy. Maybe, maybe a cure if we're lucky, but we might have to stop somewhere first and use a way, way station and then keep moving forward, buy, buy more time. Um, so I think that in the next two years, we'll, um, we'll hopefully in the next several weeks, we'll have closed financing, um, a seed round. And in the next two years, we'll have compounds that are in trial, or if not approved. Um, that's really, we set an amb ambitious goal. Um, and then hopefully it will bridge into more common indications probably in the next five years. Yeah, and so on the larger landscape uh, perspective, it's been kind of interesting with certain conversations, right? Some people are saying, you know, it's a $50 million problem, right. it's a $100 million problem. Some people are saying start with $2 million. Um, uh, fundraising. You, yeah, 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 from a fundraising perspective, what, you know, what are you settling in on and, and why? Yeah, I, we're settling in uh, around uh, $7 million as a seed financing. and. I would love $50 million. Um, I'd love $25 million. I'd love as much money as investors would give us. But the fact is it changes the dynamics of, of, the, found, of the foundation, but also the company. I mean, they both would be impacted by this. Mm -hmm. 
and of all, all of my tech startups have all been very lean operations. And of course, very challenging, but also incredibly fun. And it just allows us to operate much more efficiently. And we're not wasting money. And that's really important, ultimately, to our investors. Um, there's a lot of capital out there right now looking for good homes. And the number one thing people say, don't lose my money. Yeah. So it's like, that's fair. yeah, I mean, just don't lose my money. <laughs> it's like, if I could get, just get my money back, you know, I believe in what you're doing. And that's very true. It's like, you know, investors aren't looking for, you know, private equity returns, especially in something like this, where they believe in the social mission on top of the potential to make money, which has to be there. And that's what, you know, I always scratch my head, especially recently, where I'm like, capitalism is not bad. Capitalism is very, very good. And capitalism is ultimately going to lead to a, a, a treatment or a cure for my daughter. And um, so we're, we're all for that. And, and for, for us, it's, um, it's just the next iteration. And the, and the foundation will stay in existence. It will focus on, on just Englide 1, but the, the company will be bridging into other rare diseases and then common indications like neurodegeneration and, and, and cancer. So, and a lot of people say to us, oh my God, you're, take, you're taking on cancer and neurodegeneration? It's like, yeah, yeah, we are. I mean, why not? Well, that's not how it's been done before. Well, I don't care how it's been done before. This is how we're going to do it. Right, and you have the backing of professionals that have been doing yeah, it for yeah, a exactly. very long time. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so we'll, we'll kind of end here a little bit before we go in the Q&A, but just a, a last question. If, you know, looking back, Five years, what would you have done differently? What, what do you think uh, oh boy. you would be doing now if you would have done it differently? Yeah. You know. It's a bogus I, question in many respects. Yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> it, it, is, it is hard because, um, you know, ultimately we, we have been successful. I always say, in a way, we're like the tip of the spear, right? So we're making a lot of mistakes because we don't have a lot of. Uh, you know, comparisons. And there's a f there's, there are a few. Um, and John Crowley or Brad Margus or Monica Coonrads. I mean, these are all people that have come before us. Um, I think we've modified it with more of sort of an entrepreneurial spin and especially a tech entrepreneurial spin. Um, and, you know, I guess I don't know if I would change anything. I really wouldn't. Um, and you know, you know, maybe maybe there could have been a few um, academic researchers that we could have gotten on our side a little bit earlier. Um, th there are people that do actively work against us, and so you know, I guess the challenge for anybody that's thinking about starting something is, how do you get those people on your side? Um, and in some cases, you can't. It's impossible. Yeah, how do you let them go? And how do you let them go? How do you yeah. ignore them? Mm -hmm. Which is even harder than anything. Because you want, I mean, you generally, you, you want people to like you, right? You want people to be supportive of your mission. But no matter what you do in certain cases, it might be impossible. So it's one of those things where it's just like, you know what? We're going to go into two separate directions. I really respect you, and we're moving on. But it's, it's hard for me to like put on the blinders. So I think that's, I guess, would probably be my answer is, you know, how, how learning to kind of let the water roll off the duck's back in a way, you know, just kind of move forward. Yeah, that's great. So I'll just open up the floor a little bit to Q&A. Yeah. I have a question, I oh, just one second. Yeah. I'm just going to grab a mic. mic. Yeah. What's the disease? Can you talk yes. about that and why? I'm sorry, I talked about the gene. Yeah, <laughs> I was waiting the whole I'm speech. Sorry to, about that. And, yeah. You know, why did why did they die? And yeah, maybe go into that. So, um, Engli one is is this critical gene that we all carry. It's involved in protein uh, turnover and degradation. So, proteins are being made in our body all the time to do various functions. They typically will have a sugar attached to them, and that shape, that form helps them do their function, and then Engli 1's responsibility is actually to come in and cut those sugars off. And so then the protein can go to the proteasome and be degraded. In the case of Engli 1 patients, because that sugar is not getting cleaved off certain proteins, it really leads to uh, cell stress and then ultimately death. 
um, the patients are typically dying of infections, actually. So they, you know, they get a, a, um, a, a pneumonia, uh, something like that, and they can't beat it off. Antibiotics don't help, and uh, they, they pass away from that. So far, we've seen most of disease treatment postnatal. Um, and with the advent of whole genome sequencing, CRISPR-Cas9, do you see a possibility in the near to soon future of uh, prenatal disease and rare disease treatment? Yeah, absolutely, for sure. And I'm a, I'm a big advocate of it. Um, you know, I mean, some of these numbers vary, but we, at one of the major sequencing uh, centers that we're close with, of the undiagnosed cases that come in, they're able to identify now 50% of them. And out of that 50%, it's amazing, by the way, because before it used to take seven years, and actually there's many patients out there that are still undiagnosed, which is really a shame, because it, it does give some closure to know what you're fighting. But out of the 50% that are diagnosed, another 50%, so 25% of the total, are totally random. So they're not inherited from mom and dad, um, or the combination of the two, which to me, you know, people will say, oh, well, you can just do IVF and, and do pre-genetic testing. Well, that's, uh, that's great, but what happens if it's a random mutation that happens in utero? Um, and, you know, for the people like us where aborting is not an option, um, what do you do then? And we're going to have to fix these babies in utero. And so I would think, yes. I mean, my hope is that within, you know, everyone always gives like, oh, yeah, within the next 20 years. I mean, I, I think it's going to happen much faster than that. I mean, I would, I would start expecting some of this to happen in the next five to 10 years. And I hope it does. And I hope um, major children's hospitals start sequencing every baby that's born uh, and offering that as, a, um, as something that they, they give to the families. As in families can opt out, but I think it would be really valuable to then go through your life saying, this is my genetic information, and I'd like to understand what my risk is for Parkinson's or, you know, breast cancer, whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of different like, commercial genetic testing that is happening, I think like uh, 23andMe and yes. things like that. Are you able to partner with those uh, companies in any way, and how do you see that growing in the future as all of like us enter our genetic information into this research? Right. Yeah, so we, we do have a lot of conversations with companies like 23andMe, Council, um, the big sequencing centers, uh, the academic centers. Um, we, wh what we've been looking to them to tell us, specifically just on NGLI1, is do you see any patients or, or healthy individuals that um, there's something called resiliency, right? So let's say someone like myself has two NGLI1 mutations but does not present like Grace does. That would be fascinating to know and really valuable to science because there's probably some other genetic gene that's replacing that loss um, or it's, it's, it's compensating in some form. So we've asked them, do you see anybody that has two loss of function variants. Do you see anybody that's just a carrier of NGLI1 like me? Are they more susceptible to autoimmune diseases or cancer or neurodegeneration or peripheral neuropathy? Um, the problem is that these companies are, they're, they're desperately trying to make money. You know, 23andMe has raised a lot of money, but really has not been able to show much revenue from, well, they show revenue, do they show much profit? No. Um, so we're kind of low, person on the totem pole, but they've all been very uh, accepting and very eager to help. It's just companies have um, this sort of friction point, and that's ultimately one reason why we felt like we better start our own pharmaceutical company where we're at control of our own destiny. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think if anyone's trying to get pregnant, I would definitely do 23andMe, I would definitely do counsel, I would do these services for sure, I'd do them all. If you can afford them, in many cases, insurance pays for them, like counsel. Um, so I, I would recommend it. Yeah, they're good to know for yourself. There's a lot of people, you'd be amazed, a lot of people that I come across do not want to know. 
they don't want to know if they're susceptible to Parkinson's or, you know, type 1 diabetes or anything else. So uh, I've got a quick question on um, leadership and culture. I, you know, as, as an entrepreneur, you know, you've, you've made several organizations. I, I remember I have personally worked at organizations making just innocuous enterprise software and people were freaking out as if lives were on the line and culture was rough. And I, I've had the pleasure of being at the annual retreat that, like, where the, a working session of these scientists gathered together and it was incredible how positive the culture was and you know this is lives are on the line and these are people who are very busy and have very hard jobs you know along with everything else how do you keep a place with that vitality yeah you know it's so interesting <laughs> i've actually been thinking about it you know i'm a big golden state warrior fan so like i think about like steve kerr and like what he does and it's so weird because it almost feels like magic in a way. Like, I don't know exactly what we do to instill that in people outside of just treating them with respect and letting them really own their work. Um, the only things we ask for are that, that they collaborate with each other. Um, so we've all, we kind of feel like we've built this sandbox. And it's like, everybody in, let's have some fun. And um, we try and make it fun. Um, There's a commonality of them being patient-centered too, and yeah, really coming at it. And from, partly that's, I think, yeah. part of the vetting process. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, will this person be a good culture fit? And then they, and it goes back to like them taking it sort of and shaping it in their own vision too. And we're comfortable with that. You know, it's sort of like, yeah, like this is, this is, it's not a dictatorship. This is a, this is our community. And, um, and they are like family. I mean, that, that, that's really, they are, that's how we treat them. Um, and I, I just feel like you create that environment and they reward you even more so. Um, on a less business-oriented note, uh, how can we help? Uh, what do you do to get people involved who are not scientists? Oh, wow, that's a great question. I, I rarely get asked that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's actually... That's, I feel like that's why you ask, what you ask me all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that, I mean, it's so funny because that originally that's why we created the foundation because some family and friends were like, how can we help? And there was really no way that they could technically help outside of financially supporting us. Um, you know, some of the things that we're looking for now are we're looking for like writers on our website. You know, we're, we're looking for people that can help us with social media. Um, we're looking for people that can help us with like our events um, and making them successful. And this summer we're bringing together uh, all of the families worldwide affected by this disease. So it'll be the first time that all the patients will be together. Um, I mean, we have families from uh, northern Israel coming. We have families from China coming, um, all over Europe, all over the United States. Uh, it, it will be pretty amazing. Yeah, I guess we also need translators. That's another way we can help. <laughs> <laughs> not, not all of them speak English. But, um, you know, it's just also kind of getting the word out amongst your network that, you know, um, I, when I go on Facebook, uh, you know, I, I kind of get a little bit down because I'm like, man, people are complaining about a lot of stuff. And some of it seems so trivial compared to, and thankfully we're financially okay that we can focus on this. But there's a lot of families that are suffering from really terrible diseases, not just in kids, and they're not necessarily rare diseases either. But this, it seems like a total like whitewashing of that fact, you know? And, um, and so that's one of the, we, we feel like it's kind of our duty to educate the world that like, look, there are a lot of people suffering. Um, and in some ways, we feel like that might be why we got grace, is that we could, we could do this and we could make a difference for a lot of people. And advocate for them, right? Yeah, advocate for and the I people that's that really, can't really speak big, for right? themselves. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I mean, if we go back to the statistic of 80% being divorced, right? Yeah. Rare disease parents being divorced, then you're dealing with a single parent issue, I, right? I literally don't know how I could do it as a single parent. Yeah. There's no way. Uh, no way. Hi, uh, for the um, geek-related question, can you talk more about the, um, uh, you mentioned that this platform can be used to identify or validate your target. Um, how do you apply the same platform 
for ancillary uh, theses which are totally unrelated? So like I'll, I'll, some of the examples that we feel are closely related, um, various mitochondrial diseases, um, some CDGs. Uh, so sorry, uh, he's a glycobiologist, so he <laughs> understands a little bit of this. But CDGs are, uh, are congenital disorders of glycosylation. So that's the adding of sugars. Um, in our case, it's the clipping of sugars, taking sugars off. Um, but some of the diseases that are most closely linked are, are metabolic diseases. Um, and in terms of like mitochondria, we could do an assay on the, on the mitochondria to see is it improving in NGLY1? Is it also improving in Rett syndrome? So it might not be actually the, the primary gene that's defective. We might be looking at a secondary or tertiary target that could give us a readout that the compound is working. And if we know it's safe, and it's responding in either animals or cells, we're going to push forward on getting it into patients in, in, those, in those diseases. So in, in the case of NGLY1, we think probably there's about eight to 10 rare diseases that are closely linked to NGLY1. And back to that number I gave earlier, 200,000. If I add those eight together, it's about 300, uh, 325,000 patients in the United States alone. So this is where you can build a case for uh, a pharmaceutical company. Now, will all those diseases actually link? Unlikely, but what if we got you know two or three of them? It would be quite valuable. This one question back away. Oh, oh, Mike's here. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, could you talk about your uh, decision to make a for-profit entity sure. and the sort of opportunities and challenges that have come with that? Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, only opportunities. Yeah, only opportunities. <laughs> well, I mean, I'll, I'll start with the challenge because it's easy, right? Uh, well, I, there's two challenges. Uh, uh, one, I'm not an MD. I'm not a PhD. Uh, two, I'm, I'm biased, right? My daughter is, is potentially one of our customers. Um, so that's, what's, that's why it's important to have great leaders around you um, and also a great board that's independent. You have a scientific advisory board and you have a, a proper board of directors like any company would. And those people keep you honest and, and if I need to recuse myself, I will. Um, I've, I've told our investors I'm very happy stepping away from the company if that's what they would like. Of course, they don't want that because I'm the fuel to make it go right now. Like I'm the, I'm the cheerleader, I'm the guy that's putting the team together. But at a certain point, I will run my, my course and someone else that's better at this should take it over. Um, of course, the other challenge would be that, that, you know, are we going to charge people for an NGLY1 drug? So, so you're a dad dealing with NGLY1, your child has NGLY1, and you're going to charge us for a, a therapy? Goes back to that, look, it's, it's simple, it's Econ 101. We have to make money in order to give the investors a return, in order for investors to invest serious capital to accelerate drug development, we got to give them a stake in the business and we got to charge people. But I think the way that insurance has been going so far on these ultra rare diseases, they're reimbursing these drugs. Now, I, I don't like people taking a drug that's 50 years old and then jacking it up 5,000%. I mean, that's obviously unethical. But in the case of something like this, a therapy will not be developed unless we charge hundreds of thousands of dollars, most likely, for this therapy. It's just simple, it's a simple supply demand curve. But and then potentially the foundation shifts its model, right? It could, yeah. 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 And the opportunities are, we really have a, a, the ability to, to work just much more efficiently and nimble than anything else that's out there right now. And um, so when people say you can't do neurodegeneration and, and cancer simultaneously, it's like, well, well, watch us, because that's exactly what we're going to do. And I think that's, it takes an entrepreneurial mindset to think that way. Um, so it, it, we're, we're outsiders in a way, but we're also insiders because we have the people that, that have been through those fires before. Yeah. Thank you so much, by the way, for coming out. It's like super inspiring story. Um, I guess on a more loaded question, how do you feel that uh, this experience has changed you as a person? Yeah, it's a great question. I, honestly, I, um, I've always been a very optimistic person. I, I feel like I still am, but this experience, I think, has, has um, made me darker. 
I would say. And that's maybe not a bad thing, right? You know, it's, um, it's uh, thickened my skin. I mean, I did, as Randall said, I started my career in, in public service. I, I worked uh, for President Clinton and President Bush and Secretary Rumsfeld. Um, but, you know, if you're kind of behind the scenes, you don't really need to have thick skin. Um, we're, we're very much out in the open right now, and we don't have, you know, an army behind us. So, uh, yeah, you have to develop thick skin. And, um, and I, I, you know, ultimately I wanted to get back to being a tech entrepreneur. That's what I wanted to do. Um, so the quickest path to get back to where I felt like I belonged is what I wanted. But there's no going back, I don't think, at this point. I, it has definitely changed my, I think my purpose in life is to hopefully cure Grace and her fellow patients and then move on to the next disease and cure those people. I think a big thing too, I mean just sitting on the outside is you haven't done it alone. You've created this support network around you. That's yeah. pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And, I yeah. Mean, and everyone should think about it at some point. You're not going to do it alone, right? Yeah, Particularly in this field. You guys are just talking about the power of community. Um, I'm curious if um, Grace Science is doing anything to kind of partner with the medical community in the way of um, like patient education and advocacy. I'm speaking from experience having gotten a prenatal disability diagnosis for my daughter, and they just give you facts, scary facts that might not necessarily even be true. So I'm curious um, if you're doing any work around helping educate you know, medical practitioners around, here's what we're learning, here's how to talk about it, and here's how these you know, parents can get connected with other parents to talk about what it, what it could be life and what life is actually like every day. Yeah, it's a great question. We've been thinking a lot about this, and mostly it's been like one-off, you know, with a GI specialist or a neurologist, or um, it's, it's hard to really get the message out to everybody. We've thought about like videos. Can we do a video, you know, continuing education? I, I, I have clinicians call me from major pediatric hospitals that say, I have a patient that was just diagnosed with this. I know nothing about the disease. So what can you tell me before I meet with them? I'm thinking, oh my God. I mean, like they're relying on me? I mean, I, I guess you know, I am the subject matter expert now in the world, but um, I'm not medically trained. So, I mean, I, you know, it's a, it is a, it's a real pitfall. It, the, by the way, the problem's only gonna get worse. As we discuss, so 7,000 rare diseases goes to 14,000 rare diseases, then what do we do? I mean, I mean we're really, we're really going to be drowning. Um, but somehow there has to be like a, a continuing education loop, be it like videos. No, no person can read all the medical literature. It's impossible. So if like there was relevant, like if there's a clinic that specializes in movement disorders, like here are the five diseases that were discovered this year, and this is the telltale signs of them, and these are the things you need to be watching out for. As, an, as a parent, you're just increasing anxiety. You're like, oh, I, I don't understand it even more now. Uh, right? I mean, yeah. I, we had, a, we had a, yeah. a patient that was diagnosed last June, had made no contact with any of our researchers or us as the foundation, had, had not gone into Google and searched NGLI-1. And the, we found them by, we, I just cold emailed doctors. And do you have anybody that fits this phenotype, these physical characteristics? And sometimes we get a yes, most times we get a no. This one we got a yes. And I said, can you please connect me with this family? The family didn't even understand how it was inherited. They didn't know that it was two bad copies, one from the mom, one from the dad. You know, how do we prevent it in the future? They didn't know any of that. So it is kind of a scary gap. From our, you know, from our standpoint, given limited time and resources, we can't answer all those questions, but we do work with you know, organizations, rare disease organizations, to try and get the word out. You know, there's organizations like NORD and Global Genes and Genetic Alliance, Every Life Foundation. So those are a few that act as more of kind of umbrella organizations. And you aid on the hospital level of thinking about how to create better education. Oh yeah, within for, the hospital. Yeah, but that, yeah, I mean, yeah. within like Stanford, where I spend a lot of time, we we spend we think about that quite a bit about how we can disseminate information that's that's valid. I mean, the number one thing that we were told early on was don't go on the internet. And um, so, I, I mean, that was when Grace was undiagnosed because you just start, I, yeah, it becomes all consuming. So it's like, okay, I'm just going to rely on what my doctor tells me. And as long as the doctor's available, 
which is also part of the equation, is the doctor or genetic counselor or nurse available? Not always. It's, it's, it's just nice to know. I mean, one of the things you did for me, right, is, is our entire family didn't understand what we were going through. And, oh, yeah. and so, and you were like, well, if your doctor's not providing you information, it's okay to go outside your network and go to another doctor, maybe go to the East Coast, right? Go yeah. to Chops or something. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, and it was just that simple moment of that I wasn't receiving on the website or on any website right. that you know changed our attitude right. towards life, right? Right, for sure. Yeah. I, I had two related questions. One, um, in the news, you hear these discussions about right to try yes. laws or that approach. So I'm curious as to your opinion about those and how that, if, if it's going to be effective. And then related to that, where does the U.S. stand globally in terms of scientific progress? Like, are there other countries where you think grace might get help before a treatment's available in the US? Okay, so um, two great questions. On, on the right to try, I'm, I'm all for allowing families to make that decision to, to try a drug, um, especially one that we know is very safe, right? It's already gone through its toxicity studies, it's in other patients, and there might be some sort of bad luck where that particular drug just really is lethal or causes major consequences in a disease that they didn't really test for. But you know, people that are doing the right to try typically have no other options. They're really at the end of the rope. Life is pretty bad. Um, in our case, you know, people ask me all the time as we're starting this company, will we be pushing just for talk studies or will we also push for efficacy? We're going to be pushing for both like any legit pharmaceutical company. I mean, we're, we're going to run this like Pfizer in the sense of like, look, it better be safe and it better be effective. And if it's not those two things, we're not going to send it to the FDA. Um, in terms of the US versus the rest of the world, I mean, I, I still think the US is the place that, I mean, we are very fortunate that we are here and that Grace was born here. Um, there are, there's cutting edge research that's happening all over the place. Um, Japan, China, Germany, um, but the fact is, the top postdocs in the world want to come to the United States. And um, so we, we have the best talent. Um, yeah, I, I just think that this is, you know, they're, they're, they're all the negative things that we talk about right now around what's going on with NIH and other things in terms of budget. But this is, this is still the place you would want to be if you wanted to develop a treatment for a rare disease. For sure. But you haven't limited yourself. To oh, oh, like, oh, I mean, you're starting oh, so yeah. the. Sorry, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're in yeah. six countries. I should also yeah. mention that. Yeah, yeah, we're supporting people in six different countries. And yeah. ramping up uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. some stuff in Japan. Yeah, right exactly. Now yeah. Yep. So we'll be doing some cool things. Um, the, the scientist that discovered Anglai 1 uh, 25 years ago um, is based in Japan. So, and we have a significant research center there and then also in, in Germany, in Heidelberg. So. Um, you've mentioned some challenges that have been faced through the processes that are already in place with the government, with academia, and all of the red tape that's there. Yeah. How do you see switching over to or focusing more on that for-profit uh, side of things with the controversy around the genetic modification of or treatment of humans? Uh, yeah. Since like designer babies. Oh, in utero. In yeah. utero especially. Mm -hmm. But I mean... I guess, yeah, mostly primarily there. Uh, how, how are you planning on tackling those challenges, or is that something that is more of a, like, we'll get to that? Like, will it be different as a for-profit versus, versus a foundation where yeah. at, at a foundation you get that, like, warm, fuzzy feeling, so you're less likely to be like, that's wrong. Well, I, um, mm. I can tell you that uh, people treat us like we are a for-profit already. I mean, they, they uh, I mean, we, you know, if we tell a researcher that we're passing on his or her grant proposal, they give me an earful. Um, like, I mean, it's, they, they have no concept that I'm a rare dad, like a, a dad affected with a rare disease, um, that, you know, literally I look at the customer, the patient every single day. There's nothing, it all goes out the window. So people treat us, um, they're, I would say they're threatened by us. Um, and 
I think that typically is a good thing. If they're threatened by you, like that means you're changing things, um, be it a for-profit or a non-profit. So I think from the for-profit standpoint, we're going, we're going to hit these things head on just as we've been doing. I don't think really much changes in that sense. Yeah, I think the big deal is you're always going to be warm and fuzzy and you're going to be outcomes based. Yeah. And neither two do you have to give up, right? Well, I, I don't mean, think we have to give up on either of them. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, but we, you know, we're, we won't shy away. You know, we won't shy away. Um, and I don't know if we get much of a halo from being, like if the foundation does from like the government or pharmaceutical companies. Um, you know, at, at the end of the day, like it goes back to like my experience in business development, which is like if, if, if you send someone a sincere, honest note asking for feedback or help, assistance, it doesn't matter, you know, if you, you, know, you work for the President of the United States, you have your own pharmaceutical company, you run a tiny nonprofit. If, if the message is good, 99 times out of 100, you're going to get a response and you're going to get a meeting. And um, I don't think the, the mechanism of the for-profit or non-profit changes that. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. Oh, Matt. thank you guys. Yeah, thanks. Really appreciate it. Yeah. thanks for joining our conversation. For additional events, tools, and articles, subscribe at thrive.freerange.com.